All right, go ahead and find your seats. Finish the, the delightful conversations with the, the fellow church members. And um, as Brian said, my name is John Glanda. I'm a member here at Restore Church. And I also serve in the capacity of evangelism influence leader, which uh, basically uh, encourages the church to make sure that we're paying attention, we're attentive to the ministry of reconciliation that I'm going to actually be talking about. This ministry of preaching the good news of Jesus Christ died and risen again so that we can be reconciled to the Father forever in heaven. And so that's, that's what my, my role is to mobilize the church more and more into that direction. And, uh, and what, a, what a precious message of reconciliation that is and, and what a, a delightful honor it is to be ambassadors for Christ who carry his message forward. Uh, and, and really, what, it, what an opportunity to preach on this passage. I, I really do believe this is a message that God has, has given to us specifically here at Restore. I've been convicted as I've gone through it. And even I've been so encouraged today. Uh, in, 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 when I walked in, there were so many people that were gathered to pray for the service, pray for the lost, pray for each other, pray for the church, and, and what an encouragement that was. And then secondly, uh, Deacon Brian had, had texted me earlier this week to ask if I had any, any songs on my heart to, uh, to sing, and so I, I texted him one, uh, and I had sent him the, my outline, and my outline was, was going in, in a direction that I had since pivoted from in studying the scripture, and, uh, and he saw the same things in the text uh, that I did, uh, in choosing the songs, even though I mis misguided him with, with my original outline. So it's just praise to God, uh, and what an encouragement that was. Um, and so if you're new here, welcome to Restore Church. Uh, what you'll, you'll probably experience is, is a family environment, but a, a family of reconciled sinners. And so what we do is we encourage each other to look to Christ through every trial and, and every temptation, every triumph. Uh, as well. Um, and so we're a community of believers devoted first to Christ and second to each other. And so our, our mission at Restore, who knows it? Anybody? Restoring through relationship. Yes, restoring through relationship. And so that restoration happens vertically first and then, then horizontally next. And so this passage is just perfectly apt for that purpose reconciliation at its core means a restoration uh, of that relationship. And so what an excellent day if you're new to join us. And if you've been walking with us for a while, what an excellent day to, to participate and walk through this text with us. Um, and so before I begin, I'll go ahead and, and pray for us, ask God for, for a blessing for us in, in terms of, of the, the text that we're going to read and then also the, the message. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to be gathered as your people. We yearn for you, even as Brian prayed earlier, that as the deer longs for water, so our soul thirsts for you, Lord. Uh, and that's what we want in this message. We want to see more of you. We want you to be more prominent. We want to remember who you are, remember your promises, remember what you have given us. Will you make that clear to us? 
anything that I've prepared, Lord, if it's not from you, may, may you allow me to forget it, just put it aside, anything that is directly from you for this church that is true, Lord, may, may you allow me to focus on that and, and even go in a direction that maybe I didn't originally plan, Lord, but you are the ultimate guide, you are the giver of this ministry, and, and you are the reconciler of us to you, Lord, so... Will you bless this church with your message today? We pray this in Jesus' holy name. All right. So to begin, uh, I'd like to share a story of about a month ago. So me and three brothers from the church went to Chicago. So we went to Chicago to partner with another church that was doing a type of street evangelism. So they set up every Monday, they set up a, a truck, and they get out there and they preach publicly on the same street every Monday. They engage with anybody that, that walks by on the sidewalk uh, and ask them direct questions, try to get into a conversation, give them tracks. And so um, just, just very involved, very, very much a, a ministry that they've, they've put forward and they've been doing this for a little while uh, and actually have seen quite a bit of fruit uh, from it uh, graciously from God. Well, Pastor Cleet and Brother Anwar got into a conversation with a man named Bill, uh, and so they engaged with him for a long time, and, and Bill had a, an objection, a serious objection to this ministry of reconciliation that they were trying to preach to him, this good news of Jesus Christ, and his objection was this, Adolf Hitler. Now, for those of you that aren't very good with, with history, Adolf Hitler was a German leader in World War II. Uh, and he was responsible for World War II. He's also responsible for uh, the, the slaughter of millions of people, particularly of Jews, and particularly outside the bounds of warfare. So he strategically targeted uh, people that were non-soldiers to, uh, to slaughter. And so um, he was a brutal and reprehensible dictator, uh, but he also serves as a stand-in for evil incarnate for many people. So he served as, as the objection to this. Well, if God can forgive even someone as wretched as Adolf Hitler, I can't believe in that God. Now, the, the biblical response to this of can somebody as bad as Adolf Hitler be forgiven by God, biblical response is yes. Whoever repents turns away from their sin and believes in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, will be saved. Now, Bill's and, and other people's response, uh, of course, is, well, if that's true, then I'm not going to believe this thing. I can't, I can't buy it. So there's a historical response here. There's no evidence at all uh, that I can find that Adolf Hitler had repented of his sins and, and believed on Jesus Christ. So this is more of a uh, um, hypothetical objection than a historical one. But the objection itself highlights that for many individuals, especially those outside the church, but I would suspect for even those within the church, the difficulty of God's ministry of reconciliation in the text that we see in front of us. So my aim today is to remove any barrier uh, that we have in being ambassadors for Christ, carrying this holy message and ministry of reconciliation. And so what's an ambassador of Christ? Well, it's God's designated and proponents of this ministry, and I'm going to do that by shining a spotlight on the one who has given this ministry to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So uh, the context here, if you open your Bibles, uh, let's turn to 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 21. So if you don't have a Bible, 
let us know. We'd be happy to supply you with one. And uh, if you're, you're not quite sure how to, how to look it up, that's okay. The text is actually behind, behind me, so you can follow along there or just pay attention to the words. But uh, actually, before we dive into that text, I wanted to provide the, the context because we're jumping into the middle of one of the books of the Bible. And so we believe here at Restore that all of the words of Scripture are God-breathed. They're inspired by God, and they're profitable for correction, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. And this particular book, 2 Corinthians, was written by a man named Paul. And so who was Paul? He himself was once an opponent of Jesus Christ and a persecutor of the church, of the early church. He was witness to the stoning of Stephen that we see in Acts, uh, one of the first deacons of the church and the first martyr. Uh, and then Paul himself was rounding up Christians uh, and preparing to, to execute them, put them on trial, and really to snuff out what he thought was this blasphemy against God, which was the, the church of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So what happened was he met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, and at that moment was transformed from opponent to apostle, from persecutor to persecuted for Christ, from a man that was breathing out threats and hatred to a man that was enduring hatred with love for God's people, for Christ, and particularly for unbelievers. He had a, an extremely loving heart for that. He was a biblical example of one radically reconciled life. And by the way, he's also an encouragement for anyone that's, that's listening today. You are not too far gone. Paul considered himself chiefest among the sinners because he opposed God's church. And so wherever you're at, you can still encounter the resurrected Christ, just like Paul did. You can believe on him for forgiveness of your sins and be reconciled with him forever. Uh, and so if that's you, if the Holy Spirit is, is poking you on the heart, lean in. Any of the pastors here, and frankly, any of the members here would love to walk with you through that. All right, so Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians to one of the churches that he founded. And a church is a gathering of believers, uh, and so he's writing in the city of Corinth. Um, and at Restore, as you know, we went through 1 Corinthians before, and, and what was the main theme there? They were the what? Yeah, the gospel-forgetting church. Great job. Yeah, they were the gospel-forgetting church. So they had a lot of issues in that church. I just noted a few division, incest, lawsuits against each other, covetousness of spiritual gifts, lack of love, and Paul rebuked them through that letter. Well, the, what happened after receiving that letter is the Corinthians largely responded in a positive way, but there was a contingent of people there that were opposed to Paul and attempting to turn the church of Corinth against him, and so that's where we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians. In this letter, Paul is protecting them from these false teachers preparing them for his pending visit and reminding them of this ministry of reconciliation they have been given. So here is the text. 2 Corinthians 18 through 21. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All right, so let's break down the text. So as we walk through this, I'm going to be answering the, the what, the who, the where, the how, and the why. And I think that together, that will help us to form a clearer picture of what Paul and God's intent is for us with this passage. So first is the why. And so you're, you'll look at the screen. And so notice the use of reconciliation or reconcile in this passage. How many times does it appear? So even the first two verses, you've got it four times. And in the next verse, you have it another time. That's the total of the passage. So there's five times total for, for in the first two verses. And so what does reconciliation mean? Well, as we mentioned in the beginning, it's a restoration of relationship, a restoring in favor or friendship or harmony. Uh, so a business example, when you reconcile accounts, for example, you're making the finances balanced, the values equivalent. Um, so that's what's happening here. Paul's emphasizing restoration of God with us. That relationship was broken because of sin. We'll get into that later. And, he, and he's emphasizing this restoration of God and us. So who? Who is doing the, the restoring or reconciliation? God, yes, good job. Notice every time... Reconciliation or reconcile is used in the text. Uh, here, I'll highlight where it is because it, I, I know you already know it's, it's God, but just to pronounce it even more. Verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 19, God was reconciling the world to himself and entrusting to us the mess of reconciliation, so that's clear, that's obvious. God is the driver in both those. And then even in verse 20, uh, notice what it says here, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say reconcile yourself to God. It says be reconciled to God. God is still the driver. He's still the one doing the reconciliation. So God is the mover of every mention of reconciliation here in this passage. So again, whose ministry is this? God's. This is God's ministry. He's the giver of the ministry. He's the entruster of the message. And he's the reconciler of himself with the world. All right, and so that answers the where. Where, where is this message going out to? The world, yes. Thank you to people that said that. God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. them. Uh, so... That's fairly obvious, but a point of clarification here. Uh, when you see the world, you may think, huh, he's reconciling the world to himself. That means everyone is reconciled. And so there's a couple problems with that, even within the text. If everyone is reconciled or will be reconciled, then you have to ask the question, well, what's the purpose of a ministry of reconciliation? Why would God be making his appeal through us if everyone is already reconciled or going to be reconciled? So that's already a, a first trigger for that. 
But just to pronounce this a bit more, I'll go to a very familiar passage, which is John 3, 16, but continue on through 18, because I think it points out this distinction a bit better for us. Uh, and so it says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Good job. Yeah, so even, even in that passage, you see he loves the world, but still there's a distinction, there's a target, whoever believes in him. And then to continue, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So even there, there's a caveat that, it, that the world might be saved through him. And then, and then verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So you see the distinction. The invitation is global. God loves the world. He's, he's reconciling the world. The target of that reconciliation is limited. It's targeted to those who will receive that reconciliation. So God gives us this ministry of reconciliation, appoints us as ambassadors to the world. And so now we get to the how. How does he do this? Well, he transforms us through Christ. And so verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So we see the through Christ there, but we also see that all this is from God. So what's the all this? Well, if we go back one verse, Paul discusses this transformation in very strong and all-encompassing language, language that he makes this statement. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so there is a transformation that happens. But why is this transformation so important? Why does Paul use such extreme language here? Think about it personally. I like me. Why does past John need to go in order for new creation John to, to come forward? Well, the big, huge problem of this text, the big, huge problem in the entirety of the Bible that you see threaded throughout, and the big, huge problem in the history of all of the world is sin. Sin separates us from God. As Augustine of, of Hippo had stated, sin is, quote, a word, deed, or desire in opposition to the eternal law of God. So you see God is a lawgiver. Or as stated in scripture, sin is the transgression of the law of God, 1 John 3, 4. It's also a rebellion against God. One of the, the passages that references this is Deuteronomy 9, 7. So you see God as creator, God as ruler, God as lawgiver, and we've broken the law. So John is a sinner, and he's a re rebel, and that makes John a traitor. And what do you do with traitors? You don't make them ambassadors, right? That's the first rule of a nation. You don't make traitors your ambassadors. And so that is a problem. If sinful, rebellious, traitor, uh, is, is the, 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 the one that's to be the ambassador, well, then you have that, that problem. So in order to be an ambassador for God, someone who God is making his appeal through, we need to be righteous. So we see the problem. So here's how John Piper put it in his devotional, Salad Joys, on Thursday. 
uh, he put it this way, quote, we need righteousness to be acceptable to God, but we don't have it. What we have is sin. So God has what we need and don't deserve, righteousness, and we have what God hates and rejects, sin. What is God's answer to this situation? His answer is Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died in our place and bore our condemnation by sending his own Son the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he, God, condemned sin in the flesh, Romans 8, 3. Whose flesh bore the condemnation? His. Whose sins were being condemned? Ours. This is the great exchange, end quote. Or as verse 21 puts it, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you see that glorious transformation. So that's what happens. We're transformed. We need to be transformed. We need to be righteous in order to be ambassadors. And then I just want to draw out something else here. Notice that he doesn't say that Jesus was made to be a sinner. So we know that Jesus never sinned. Instead, God made him to be sin. Jesus lived his entire life never once sinning, or even as one of his closest disciples who walked with him for years daily had said in 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. But on the cross, Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, willingly allowed all of the sin, all of the rebellion, all of the, the, the treachery and the vile, wicked deeds and thoughts to pour into his perfect and pure heart like an avalanche, causing the Father to treat him as the very thing he despises. As I was meditating on this passage I believe it, it's beyond our comprehension to really understand Jesus' words on the cross. If you remember his words, Eli, Eli, lemma shabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very God has forsaken the very God. And so we see that in this transformation. Jesus, in that moment, fully embodied this paradox of our faith, and the answer to our biggest problem, how a sinless Savior can become sin without himself being a sinner in order to make those who believe in him for forgiveness of sins righteous. Or, emphasizing this paradox in the words of our brother Stephen, I can't believe it, but I'll believe it. God gives us this ministry of reconciliation and appoints us as ambassadors to the world by transforming us through Christ. That's the how. Now let's get back to Bill's objection, which helps us to understand the why of the passage. And so the objection again, I could never believe in a God who forgives, in this case, Hitler, or fill in the blank with whoever you disdain and think is, is beyond that, that pale. So there's two major biblical problems with this objection. Uh, first, it, it underestimates the depravity of sin, and it undervalues the Savior. And so underestimates the depravity of sin. You'd think, oh, I actually, no, I'm, I'm enlarging sin here. Why, why is this uh, underestimating the depravity of sin? Well, 
One is we have, to, we have to be aware that there is a moral comparison going on. My sins aren't as bad as this person's. We do, we do this in order so we can justify ourselves. So who's ever under this, this bar, and I'm under this bar, so if you're under this bar, great, you get to go to heaven. Your sins are forgivable. Who's ever above that bar, sorry, you're out of luck because that's, that's too far, that's too much. And so we keep that bar here, unless, of course, we sin a little bit more, and then we get to the bar, and, and then we raise the bar a little bit because great, there's more grace so I'm in again, and, and everyone else that's me or below is in. But above me, sorry, too, too far. So uh, all those bad people, they're, they're, that's too much. So there's, of course, a parallel in Scripture to the, to the Pharisee who's praying to God and just seeking to justify himself by talking about all the good, righteous things he does, the tithing and the fasting and the prayer, and, and certainly not being like that wretched tax collector who is a sinner, and uh, compared to the sinner who was, couldn't even look at God, that just pleaded for mercy because he was a sinner. And Jesus reminded everyone that one of those two went away justified. It wasn't the Pharisee, it was, it was the tax collector. Um, another, another thing that should cut us when we're, when we're seeking to do the comparison game is Jesus' words to the crowd when they brought the woman uh, that was caught the act of adultery to him, and they asked him to, well, the scriptures say, to stone her, what do you say, teacher? And he replied, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And what happened? One by one, they all left. I know from scripture that if Jesus was to pose that question, that challenge, to any generation in any setting, the result would be the same. And I know that because the scriptures attest that there is none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, but if I think about this a, a bit more deeply, I think even beyond the moral comparison, there's, there's a, another uh, problem that we have that I think is even more corrosive, and that's that we misunderstand forgiveness. We think it means to approve or condone. That's why we set the bar. Because if I can understand that sin, if I can uh, be okay with that sin, then that's a forgivable sin. And so we, we, we misunderstand forgiveness in doing that. That the act itself is just below the acceptable shock of conscience uh, as to warrant forgiveness. In other words, we think that forgiveness is reserved for those deserving forgiveness and hence righteous enough. So I have a, a clip from a, a movie that uh, my wife and I had watched a few months ago called Sabina, and it's a movie about Sabina Wormbrand uh, during the, the Nazi era. She's a real person married to Richard Wormbrand. If you're familiar with Voice of the Martyrs, that's the organization that they started. Uh, and so in this scene, both her and, and her husband, Richard, uh, they're, they're now Christians, but they were formerly Jews. And so uh, there is a, an individual soldier who had boasted of killing all of these people, all of these Jews. And he, he identifies the specific location that her family was in. So it's assumed that he was either there or, certainly, or responsible for the murder of her family. 
And so this is actually a true enactment, it's a dramatization. Uh, I read the, the, real, uh, the, the real results of what happened, um, and there was only very slight variation. So we'll, we'll play the movie and then continue on. something very important to tell you. What? Go on. If you were to look behind that door, you'd see my wife, Sabina. Parents, her sisters, and her 12-year-old brother were killed with the rest of her family. You were there in Transnistria. That's where they were taken. You don't know exactly who you've shot, but we could assume you're the man who murdered her family. You're a Jew? I'm a Christian. Is this a trap? No. Though I'm sure there are many who would like to kill you. Let them try. I don't fear death. You should fear God. There is no God! And what if I could prove to you there is? You can't. Let's do an experiment. I'm going to wake up my wife and tell her who you are and what you've done. And I can predict exactly what will happen. I don't want an experiment. She won't speak a word of reproach to you. In fact, she'll bring you the best supper she can find in this home. I don't believe you.
husband's forgiveness. Christ forgive me. He can forgive you if you ask. I don't know if you, you caught what she had said. The heart of the gospel is forgiveness. Those who have been forgiven much love much. Uh, and as you saw in that scene, forgiveness does not mean condoning the act. The act was bad enough to result in the death of Christ. And, and that is really the root of that objection, is that it undervalues the, the worth uh, and the preciousness of the Savior. By underestimating the depravity of sin, we undervalue the precious blood of Christ instead of magnifying his grace. Um, a few years ago, I was doing some late-night internet browsing and accidentally stumbled on a story of a young boy named Jamie Bulger, who was two or three years old. And so I won't get into the, the details of this story because uh, it's, it's graphic and grotesque, but he was abducted, tortured, and murdered by two 10-year-old boys. And uh, the story had rocked me for weeks. My son was about that age, so I think that had, had something to do with it. Um, but it, it speaks to the reality that we are horrified when innocent people suffer. It greatly affects us when we see, when we see that, that level of suffering. But the story of Jesus is infinitely greater than that. Not only is he infinitely more innocent and infinitely more righteous and infinitely more precious, but he suffered for our sake. Our sins put him on the cross. See, the depth of forgiveness needed magnifies the worth of the Savior. One atom of Christ's blood is so powerful and precious that it can wipe away the sins we think are minimal and the sins that, sins that we think are reprehensible. It doesn't make them okay. It was costly. They were wretched enough for the Holy One of God to die for them. But God loves much and forgives much in order to reconcile evil, vile enemies to himself and make them his ambassadors. Don't be tempted to question his generosity because it exceeded your perceived debt. Realize instead that the one who justifies the ungodly is instead even greater, more gracious, 
more loving and more glorious than you had imagined him to be. So what is this passage about? This passage is about reconciliation. All right, over there. All right, so what is this passage about? It's about reconciliation. Whose reconciliation is it? This is God's reconciliation. Where does he intend to take the message? To the world. How does he do this? By transforming us through Christ into his ambassadors. And why? To magnify the depth of his love, forgiveness, righteousness, and worth. So altogether, the big idea of the passage, God transforms us through Christ into his ambassadors, making his appeal of reconciliation to the world in order to magnify his righteousness. So then, how shall we live? And this gets into the application. So many of these, actually all these, are going to be familiar to you uh, because Mike had, had preached on these last week, but it's important to, to keep these in front of us because it's a, a good synopsis of, hey, where do we go from here? How do I take this away? And so he shared with us a principle to know and a promise to remember. So, as ambassador, God has given you a message of reconciliation to deliver. And so, the principle to know is that we will be a fragrance of life to some and a fragrance of death to others. We must be willing to stink to some in order to smell like glory to others. And then the second is the promise. As an ambassador, we trust that the Father has stocked the pond. All that he's called will come to him. So we know that he's called the people to himself, and his church cannot fail. <coughs> we don't need to be cute or clever to reach the world for the lost and reach the world for Christ. <coughs> Remember, this is his ministry. And then next he had shared a plan to reach the lost. And I loved how he, he just crystallized this very simply in, in what is taught in the Bible. Pray, love, proclaim. So we pray. He challenged us by asking a convicting question last week. What does prayer cost you? He said that prayer that doesn't cost much may not be worth much. So can we commit to praying for the lost in the community? Can we, can we trigger new ideas when we're going out into the neighborhoods? Maybe, maybe some of you will dedicate yourselves to walking in the neighborhoods and just praying for the people there, praying for changed hearts, praying for fertile ground, praying for boldness, praying for opportunities, praying for the lost to come. As I discussed in the evangelism training a week ago, we were preaching to dead people. We cannot revive dead people without the power of God. One of the essential tools that God gives us as ambassadors is the power of prayer. The next love. And so a few months back, uh, we had gone through 1 Corinthians 13. And one of the, the things I wrote in my, my notebook, if I witness without love, I am nothing. And I think that's a, a hesitation for, for many of us when we go out and we say, okay, well, I don't know that I can publicly preach or publicly proclaim because I've seen some bad examples of that happening. And so I would urge you to keep this in mind is that if you're doing it without love, then, it, then it's worthless. So of course, 
if you're doing it out of anger or spite or condemnation or judgment or self-righteousness or any of those things, then yeah, that proclaiming is, is not going to be fruitful. It's not going to be good and it's not going to be scriptural. You have to do it with a heart of love. And so the heart of love propels us to share this message with others. A heart of, of love honors God in fulfilling this message and a heart of love will give us those, those opportunities and that boldness and, and, and help us in saying the things that are true with grace. And the next is proclaim. And so uh, Mike had challenged me a few, a few months ago as evangelism influence leader to mobilize the church in a public proclamation. And to be upfront with all of you, I was hesitant. I was resistant at first, thinking that, oh, well, I don't know if that's really fruitful in this context, in this generation, that sort of thing. And he challenged me that the weight of scripture is on this public proclamation. And so he challenged me to seek the scriptures to see if that's true. Be like the Bereans, in other words. Uh, and so providentially, not even in searching the scriptures for this purpose, but just in, in reading the scriptures in my own uh, devotional time, God started pouring in example after example after example of public proclamation. Go through just a, a few of these, but there are many. Ezra, publicly reading the law. Jonah, preaching repentance in the center of Nineveh. The other prophets who testified in king's courts or marketplaces. Jeremiah's demonstrations and some of the other uh, uh, prophetic demonstrations of walking around either naked or with a dirty loincloth or all of those different things were on one side for days and days and days. So there was a public proclamation there. Jesus sending his disciples out two by two to go into the towns to share the good news. The woman at the well who publicly proclaimed throughout the town, come see a man who told me everything that I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? And then the people coming to him to see for themselves if it was true. And then, of course, Jesus, who preached openly for, to crowds and in synagogues during his public ministries. Again, there are many, many more. But here are some helpful scriptural references to, to help uh, just give you some scriptural support as well for this, this point. 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul exhorts Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of scripture. John 18.19-21, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And then Paul uh, making his appeal to the king against charges the Jews had laid on him in Acts 26. He says this in verses 25 through 26. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. And keep in mind, this was in the early church when Christianity was persecuted by the authorities. And so that's, that's to proclaim. And, and one other sub-bullet I'll add on here is let's encourage each other with, with examples. Examples where we share with our neighbor, share with a coworker, share with a family member, share with a stranger uh, in a coffee shop or wherever it is. Let's encourage each other with those examples. And then lastly, 
just to, to finish up Mike's points, he, he added some opportunities that we have coming. And so uh, maybe late notice for, for many of you, uh, some of us are going to Chicago tomorrow um, to be part of the, the public proclamation uh, as well. So we're excited about that. Uh, so if you're able to, come join. And then uh, there's a Beautiful Feet training this Saturday, May 7th at the post office, 9 a.m. to 10.30. And so if you're not part of the, uh, uh, the Beautiful Feet team, our evangelism team, then um, we invite you to come. It's, it's open. It, we consider these soft walls, which means you can come and, and go as, as you're able or as you'd like to. But if you are part of the team, then, then we really strongly encourage you to join us for the training. Uh, and then there's also Beautiful Feet team events, which again are the public proclamation as well as the, the Ministries of, of Mercy, that dirty towel team where we can do service events. So we're going to interchange both of those. That will be the first and third Saturdays beginning May 21st. Uh, and the Neighborhood Outreach, uh, that's on the second and fourth Wednesday beginning May uh, 25th. So we'll go out as a church as part of our, our fellowship gathering on Wednesdays. Uh, go out into the neighborhoods and interact with people, pray for people, pray in the neighborhood, uh, give them flyers, whatever it is, get into gospel-centered, God-honoring conversations. Uh, and so may God give us grace as we fulfill his calling for us, which is to be ambassadors throughout the world in every context, in every area of our life. And with that... I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your message in 2 Corinthians. We thank you for your ministry of reconciliation. How great it is that you've given us a ministry of reconciliation and not one of condemnation or one of, one of hatred or anything like that, but instead you're so gracious and you're so loving that you use us as vessels to reconcile a wayward people to yourself as we were all once wayward. May we magnify your worth in our minds, in our hearts today, and may that propel us to share the good news of Jesus Christ with our neighbors, with others. Lord, we pray this all in Jesus' holy name. Amen.